Good morning. Um, today's Bible reading is from Isaiah 42. It's on page 1085. Uh, it's Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 17. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teachings the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that, has, that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them. Let the wilderness and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his name in the islands. The Lord will march out like a champion, like a warrior he will stir up his zeal. With a shout he will raise the battle cry and with, will triumph over his enemies. For a long time I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. But those who trust in idols, who say to images, you are our gods, will be turned back in utter shame. Well, thanks, Helen, and good morning again, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here at church, uh, part-time here at Tonsley, and it's great to be with you uh, for the sermon series in Isaiah. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, or like most of us uh, appreciate a reminder, I framed the series around a question, that is, what is the ultimate purpose of God's grace to us? The grace shown as Jesus willingly bears sin's penalty 
on the cross, bestowing upon us the undeserved gift of grace, a reconciled relationship with God, a place in His family now and always, and showing us mercy where we avoid something bad that we do deserve, God's punishment against our rebellion and sin. It's at the cross of Christ where we see the grace and mercy of God on display in God's chosen and defining image of His love for us. In a nutshell, that's the good news of Jesus, the gospel as we call it for short, or sometimes we refer to it simply as the grace of God. So to ask the question, what's the ultimate purpose of God's grace, is really to ask the question, why? Why has God done all of this for us? What's the end goal God had in mind that motivated Him to show both grace and mercy to us through Jesus? Uh, Like all of our sermons, it's online. It'd be great to catch up if you missed it. But in short, the big uh, idea I've put forward for this series is well summarised by a quote we used last week that didn't pop up on the screen at the the dramatic time. So it's from a guy called uh, Paul Tripp in my daily devotional book. So it's up on screen now and in your leaflets to make sure you got it uh, this week. Uh, Tripp's take on the ultimate purpose of God's grace, kind of its chief end, uh, reads like this. Here is the bottom line. Sin kidnapped our worship and grace works to restore it to its rightful owner, God. It is only when God is in His rightful place in His hearts that everything else is in its appropriate place in our lives. And only powerful grace can accomplish this. The ultimate purpose of God's grace, I'm contending, is to reorient our worship away from all of the things of this world that we might delight in, love, look to for both security and meaning, and to put God at the centre of our lives, worshipping Him, delighting in Him, loving and enjoying Him and looking to Him for security and purpose. And receiving with thanksgiving all the good things we have in this world, relationships, food, a warm home, work, yet never letting them become central to who we are because God is always at the centre. At the same time, we're learning by God's grace to say no to all of the things in this world that we are drawn to, that God makes clear, only bring destruction, pain, everything God declares as sin. So I'm putting to you, reoriented worship is the ultimate goal of God's grace and I think Isaiah makes a very powerful case for that. Now, I just want you to be aware there is a danger in what I'm doing here. I could kind of, kind of build over nine weeks and reveal at the end point about the ultimate purpose of God's grace and that'd be okay. But in this instance, I've chosen to share with you up front my main sort of application point for Isaiah for us today, which is also okay. Yet please don't just take it as a given just because someone thought it was a good idea to give me a microphone today. It's really important, I think, in every sermon, however it's structured, to have your Bibles open 
and to be looking to see if the preacher makes his case from the Bible, because that is where the authority really is. All sorts of havoc ensues when churches trust what their pastors say too much without diligently searching the Scriptures. It's part of the reason we have an SMS line, you can use it today, you can send question to, it's, it's a signal that we, you know, everybody in the room sits under the authority of God's grace and, that's, and we can ask questions and we shouldn't just take things for granted from up front. And I'll go as far as to say is you're protecting yourself, those you love, your brothers and sisters in Christ as you consciously sort of engage with God's Word in this way, knowing that preaching is only good preaching as far as it handles God's Word with great care and kind of makes its point cutting with the grain, so to speak, of where the passage and the book is going in context. So with that little... uh, Intro up front, it'd be great to have your Bibles open in front of you to Isaiah 42 on a page 1085 in the Bibles on your seats or as many people these days on your app. And uh, also if you're here today checking out who Jesus is for the first time, a very warm welcome to you. My hope is that it'll be a great series for you to understand why Christians love Jesus so much. Why we not only think it's intellectually credible to follow him, but also that there's great beauty and ultimate truth behind the Christian faith, truths that are unparalleled and the only way to rightly order our lives as we kind of reorient our deepest desires and aspirations around our relationship with God, worshipping him. That's why the Christians have gathered here today. And it's only then when we get God at the centre that everything else falls into our rightful place in life too. So as you turn to Isaiah 42, I'll quickly recap uh, last week and orient us to the book and and also what we missed in uh, chapter 41, which I hope many of you have had a chance to read in the daily reading guides we prepared and had on the seats last week and there's more copies available if you missed it too. So in chapter 40, Isaiah begins to prepare God's people to understand the coming destruction of the nation. It's been sort of foretold the chapter before, so God's at work preparing the nation uh, for exile in Babylon. He prepares a message of comfort, asserting his own sort of ultimate power that all of these events are his doing, that he holds the very nations in his hands. And despite his people's track record of regularly lapsing into worshipping the created things instead of their creator God, that God alone has the power to save and that he he reassures them that he cares deeply for his people and with great faithfulness and compassion, he will save. So the people are to then look to him for salvation. He will not tire And those who place their hope in him will renew their strength. They will run and not grow weary, soaring on wings like eagles. That was the kind of lofty rhetoric of Isaiah last week. Then in chapter 41, Isaiah sort of turns his attention then to the nations, the Gentiles, as they were referred to, essentially every other nation than the very small uh, nation of Israel. That's kind of the rest of the world who sin had also ensnared into false worship. 
And this kind of, uh, an image begins to be painted, uh, sort of a growing sort of threat rises of someone uh, of great power and might coming, uh, subduing the kings and nations before him. And, and we'll see who that is as Isaiah unfolds. But before this powerful one, the nations will tremble. And amidst the rising panic, there's an image of people trying to strengthen each other. There's people there in the nations constructing an idol, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 41, to save them from this coming ruler, crafting it with great care, kind of layering expensive metals over it, you know, saying to each other, it's okay, the welding will hold. While at the same time, there's kind of this, this picture of frailty with someone like nailing down its feet so it doesn't sort of topple over in uh, the coming judgment. Isaiah 41 then sort of switches back again to Israel, the covenant people of God, at that time, kind of contrasting the nations around them's panic and the confidence God's people can have because of His grace towards them. Verse 10 of chapter 41 is a good example of this kind of switch back to the comfort God offers His people. He says, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. And the picture is kind of built and built of the futility of placing your trust in anyone or anything other than the one true God in the coming storm. Isaiah sort of very effectively and poetically kind of roundly mocks these people who are trusting in their idols. But by the time you get to the end of chapter 41, there's a question left hanging in the air and it's a pretty troubling one. These blessings to Israel all sound great. But is God going to leave the vast majority of the world, everyone other than this tiny nation of Israel, languishing in idolatry without hope and without a future? I think if you take the time this week to really read and engage with chapter 41, for the nations who have no relationship with God, the, the picture just descends and spirals down and gets worse and worse. This kind of rising sense of hopelessness grows. Like if this was the narrative in a, you know, an old school Western movie, this would, be at the, this would kind of be at the point in the story where you know, the, the situation's got worse and worse, the bad guys look unstoppable, you know, the sheriff's dead, the deputy's been run out of town and you're thinking, I just don't know how, how they're going to get out of this one. And the music and the imagery all paint a sense of rising doom, sort of imagine the camera sort of panning back from this town. And you think, well, all hope seems lost. Then, oh, I practice that. Oh, I can't do it now. <laughs> you know, the whistle in a Western movie. Two kind of boots step into frame. And we don't know who they belong to, but kind of the music change and the next shot kind of signal to us that something big is about to change. Our hero is here. And against the dark backdrop, pending doom for the people of God and the nations around them, all these kind of images of hopelessness and futility, it's into that, that kind of emotional moment that we read chapter 42. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations." In this one verse, we kind of learn the answer to the question left hanging. Will God kind of 
abandoned the majority of the world to despair, judgment and hopelessness? And the answer is very firmly no. He's going to send his anointed servant. This one verse says, not only will he be God's servant, but God chose him, God will uphold him, God will delight in him, God will give his spirit to enable him. He's no local sheriff. His jurisdiction extends to the ends of the earth. Two more times we're told justice is his mission. Verse 3, in faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. Verse 4. Just as God promised so many generations before to Abraham, God has a plan of blessing that includes and has on the horizon the whole world through Abraham's descendants. That is the scope of this yet kind of unnamed servant's task. These first four verses also show us that the servant's wielding of this great God-given power will be unlike anything this world has ever seen. There won't be soldiers with a megaphone in the streets declaring a new regime and the new rules. The poor will not be taken advantage of or destroyed and kind of cleaned out. There'll be no kangaroo courts mocking the rule of law to spread fear, stripping people of their dignity and resources. There will be no relentless and cruel use of force used to break people's will. Rather, verse 2 and 3 say, this, about this servant, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. David Jackman, someone I uh, read a lot on Isaiah and commended uh, to you last week, and I think we've got a few of the copies of the book I've been reading a lot on Isaiah, puts it this way. When speaking about this servant and kind of the, the contrast between how the world so often uses power and how this great servant will, he says, instead, the servant will win minds and hearts throughout the world by the consistent faithful penetration of his truth and compassion. And you only need to read the pages of the New Testament Gospels to see the fulfilment of this prophecy, walking the earth. The picture that begins here and is built about the servant throughout the rest of Isaiah is used by Jesus to announce himself to the world. In Luke's Gospel, for example, we read of Jesus entering the synagogue on the Sabbath and as a visiting teacher pulling out the scroll of Isaiah. He turns to chapter 61, a passage that kind of summarises so much of what Isaiah introduces to us today about this servant. Jesus reads the passage from Isaiah, a passage read by the people of God for probably around 700 years by that point. Leading into, the, leading into and during the exile in Babylon and all the generations since, up until when Jesus was sitting in the synagogue that day. So Jesus reads from Isaiah 61 about 
this servant, hands the scroll back to the attendant, walks, sits, takes back his seat, sits down, and everyone stares at him. You could hear a pin drop. We read everyone's kind of, just very intense kind of glaring at him. Pause for dramatic effect. Uncomfortable silence. And then Jesus says these astounding words. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, much of the world today can access an account of Jesus' life and see very quickly Jesus is the servant that we're introduced to today in Isaiah 42. But as always, kind of try and take yourself back to the first readers of this. Again, perhaps uh, an exile sitting uh, by the shores with Babylon with a few friends who somehow, given how pricey and precious they were, but just, just imagine they had a scroll of uh, Isaiah with them. Now, what would they have made in that context of Isaiah 42 verses 1 and 4? Having seen their nation destroyed, having been mocked by the Babylonians for placing their trust in God, having seen many of the people that they love around them killed. What would they have made of this? God sending someone to bring justice to the nations? Surely not. He can't even look after us. Look at our situation. A gentle servant who doesn't accomplish this by force, I just don't get it. Well, verse 5 reminds them that these words come from their creator God who gives life and breath and to all people who walk this earth. Verse 6 says, yeah, sure, this, this servant is unusual, but God himself is going to strengthen and keep him. And read with me the end of verse 6. God will make him a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentile. There's that worldwide scope again. To open the eyes of the blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. This will be God's answer to the paralyzing idolatry of the nations. Now, idolatry in the Old Testament, kind of making a statue and bowing down to it as Isaiah 41 paints from it, it can seem pretty far removed from us. But in the New Testament, idolatry is spoken of in much kind of broader, more general terms, like the idolatry of greed, for example, often sort of picked up, where we kind of love how money kind of facilitates our experience of our world how it kind of fuels the narrative in the context of our relationships, the, the houses it buys, the travel, the food and the wine, the education, all good things in their rightful place. But when we look for, to wealth for what it provides, when we look for wealth for our security, when we kind of just kind of seek to amass ever more and it captivates our hearts, well, that's rank idolatry. That's sin kidnapping our heart's worship, taking it away from the loving creator God who gave us it all. Only God's grace, 
only God's servant Jesus can bring light into that darkness. That our hearts, in their own strength, due to our supreme overconfidence, don't have the wit to perceive. Jesus alone opens blind eyes through the grace and mercy won for us on the cross, through the persistent and faithful penetration of the truth he brings with such compassion. Demonstrating God's great love for us, he sets hearts captivated by sin free again to worship aright. And through the declaration of the grace and mercy of God, through the Word of God and the same Spirit's work in our hearts to believe it, anyone on the planet can be bowled over by the grace of God and in the best way possible, never really recover from it. But its ultimate end, why did God display such grace? Why did He send His servant, who we'll learn more about in the weeks to come? Well, verse 8 tells us, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Sin has kidnapped our worship and grace works to restore it to its rightful owner, God. Now, if you're considering Jesus for the first time, I just want to acknowledge what perhaps for you is a burning question. Is God some egomaniac who just needs to be worshipped? We'll keep considering this through the series, but to get you started, we all see the deep problems in our world. Every worldview, every belief system is all looking and seeing the same problems. The God of the Bible explains all of it as flowing out of the broken relationship we have with Him by default. A broken relationship that we cannot fix in our own strength, that we cannot kind of come up with the right answer through science or looking at the stars. Yet at the same time, God declares that each of us, through looking at even the marred beauty of our world, we perceive that we're made for so much more. We perceive our origin comes from something far more powerful than random chance. Yet our hearts suppress that evident truth. It's the Bible's account, sin has captivated our hearts. We are not free. We deeply offend God by suppressing that truth, choosing not to live in relationship with Him, choosing not to give thanks to Him for His goodness. And in our sin, we not only deeply offend God, but we hurt one another as well, creating such a mess when we sin against one another. And such is God's love for each person on the planet, God kind of takes that sin very personally. It provokes him not only the sort of the, the primary offence of deeply offending God, but also our kind of horizontal sin against one another. Both of them together, they provoke his anger and wrath. Yet out of great love, God is unwilling 
to let that be the end of the story. He pursues us out of great love, sending his servant, simply unwilling to abandon this world to hopelessness and despair. God alone knows the beautiful relationship with him for which he created us. That loving, worshipping, enjoying, delighting in relationship with our God who leads us gently, who sustains us, cares for us, loving us. It's simply what we were made for. Because he's our creator, because of this great work he's done in sending his Jesus out of love for us, because of his grace and mercy, he's entirely worthy of our worship. We're actually very comfortable worshipping things that we love. We are kind of by nature worshipping creatures. The problem is sin kidnapped our worship and turned our worshipping hearts to anything other than our Creator God. And it is only when grace reorients our worship back to where it belongs that everything else falls into place. And it frees us up to enjoy relationships, food, work, this world. All without it being the ultimate thing that kind of bears the full weight of needing to fulfill our deepest needs. We don't need to do that anymore. God does that for us. So this is not about God being an egomaniac. It's simply put, birds are made to fly, fish to swim, and humanity for joyfully worshipping something worthy. And God alone, as we've already sung this morning, is the only one who is worthy. Again, I thought those first two songs just beautifully captured so much of the heart of what I wanted to say today. And this servant we're introduced to today comes to rescue us and to set us free and to reorder our worship aright. We know him as Jesus. And God declared in verse 9, all of this, some considerable generations in advance to comfort his people in exile. And we have simply have the great privilege of looking back having seen Jesus walk this earth and knowing that God always keeps his promises. And as a result of all this, the intended outcome of it all for, is for all of those who are captivated by the grace of God, placing their trust in Jesus, reorienting their worship aright, that we break out in joy, a new psalm pours forth from our hearts. <coughs> a song that will eventually be heard across the globe, in the distant islands, as Isaiah put it. Now, what Israelite sitting in Babylon could have ever conceived the ends of the earth and all that would happen in the coming millennia? That people like us on the world's biggest island across the other side of the world would be singing God's praises this morning. When we read verse 11 of the kind of the towns in the wilderness praising God, they never could have conceived of, you know, a small group of believers gathering 
in uh, a little church today in the outback of Australia. Kind of insert uh, plug for supporting Bush Church Aid here. <laughs> Isaiah 42 starts to paint a picture of the worldwide scope of his servant's work and the joyful worship of God that is its result. And of the conquering Lord marching out to do battle against our greatest enemy, sin, and returning victorious. We're told here God patiently waited to bring this plan forth, but on a day of God's choosing, the servant's work will start and then be unstoppable, bringing light into the world and into the darkest places of our hearts. These things I will do, declares God. I will not forsake them. And as we read this day of Jesus striding this earth, we now look back and can see with confidence that he has and continues to do this work today. But our reading today finishes with a challenge. We're told that those who trust in idols, who, who don't reorient their worship, they will be turned back from this glorious future that God has planned for this world in utter shame. Now, if you're thinking through following Jesus, I'd be very remiss in my job at this point not to challenge you with the very clear implication of this. What you worship matters. And we all worship something. The question simply is, is it the one true God who loves you, made you, calls you, and sent his servant for you? Please do not let this challenge wash over you. We plant churches like this one in response to God's grace, following the instruction of God's chosen servant, Jesus to take this great news to the world so that God can captivate more hearts by his grace and reorient our worship back to what it was made for, for joy, for love and for worshipping our creator God. We're here to help, have a chat after, tick the box on the tear-off slip, whatever you do, um, do something, pray to God today as you go home, ask God for help and come back next week. And for those who already trust in Jesus, the one point I chose to leave with you to consider from all of this today is about us, your church family. As we gather on a Sunday and consider God's Word, as we sing, as we've already done and we're about to do, as we pray as we enjoy seeing again people who are very dear to us as we genuinely and lovingly welcome people that are new to us so much more is happening than just another special interest group gathering it's so much more than finding our people to do life with we are people gathering here today whose hearts have been reoriented to worship the one true God who loves us. With hearts set free from sin's penalty, with hearts set free from the fear of death, 
with others who, by God's grace alone, have had our hearts aligned to our ultimate purpose, living our whole life as worship for God. When you look at it that way, from the kind of spiritual, global, kind of cosmic way, what we're doing today is something completely unique. It's happening this day across the globe in gatherings large and small, from big and drafty cathedrals to those sitting under a tree finding shade from the day's heat in far-fung places. But just take a moment as we sing today. Take a moment, just quiet your, lo- your mind for a minute as you go to the lunch celebration, Christmas in July slash August after church. Or pause for a moment, coffee in hand in your growth group this week. And consider that all of these activities are so much more than just another gathering. We meet as grace transformed, rightly aligned with God, worshippers. <laughs> the servant of Isaiah 42 has done this. And he calls us to join the onward march of declaring God's grace and mercy to his world until justice, peace and worship are brought to the nations. Let's close together in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy to us. We thank you for this beautiful picture that, that begins in Isaiah today of your servant that we, is just built and built through the, the pages of Isaiah but who breaks forth and strides this earth as our Lord Jesus Christ almost 2,000 years ago. Uh, we praise you for your servant's work. We praise you for his character. We praise you that you have sustained him as God the Father and put your spirit upon him. You enable him, call him, delight in him and enable his ongoing work today, rightly aligning hearts back and reorient us, reorienting people across the world into right worship of you, all enabled by your grace and mercy shown as Jesus headed to the cross uh, to pay the penalty for our sin on his shoulders and that you brought him back to life again to raise as ruler uh, of your church today, a ruler of this coming kingdom that we experience today but look forward to its full realisation when your servant returns. Please help us to worship you today from the heart And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.